Psalms is what we're going to begin. As Father, we come tonight and we desire right now, we, we're excited to be here. Uh, I thank you for all those who have come out tonight, all the youth that have come out, um, just to be able to come in the middle of the week and be refreshed and renewed. And, and Lord, that's my prayer as we go through these Psalms, uh, that Lord, uh, whatever uh, situation or state that we find ourselves in tonight, that we would know that um, you desire for us in our hearts to give you our psalm, to cry out to you, to worship you, to, um, Lord, to look to you, to get our eyes and our hearts and our focus on you. So, Lord, I pray that tonight that we would say, Lord, thank you, uh, that we're here to be touched by you and your word and comforted and instructed so, Lord, bless this time in the study tonight and through the next weeks as we study this wonderful book. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The book of Psalms, as you know, is probably the most read book of all of the Bibles. Uh, as I mentioned to you, there's 150 chapters. It's the largest book in the Bible. Uh, and certainly even non-Christians know some portions of uh, the book of Psalms. For example, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think most people could quote that or have heard that before. So Psalms is a very popular, a matter of fact, in your own devotions, that many of you, you have a reading pattern that, that includes a psalm, perhaps, every day that you read, a psalm or a proverb. So those two kind of go together. A lot of people will read uh, proverbs on the day uh, of the calendar. Today's the 18th, so you read Proverbs 18, perhaps uh, included in your devotion reading is the psalms. And I know, as I told you before, that in the last six months, that I've read a lot of the Psalms. It seems like the Lord kept taking me back to the book of Psalms. I, um, in my devotion, was reading other books of the Bible, but uh, really where I was uh, coming back to and really being blessed and touched by was going to the Psalms. And, and the psalmist is, we have different authors that, um, that pen these Psalms. Um, we know that approximately two-thirds of the Psalms have known authors, and the remaining one-third are anonymous. And um, those who write these Psalms, we know that there's a wide variety of subjects, um, uh, a wide variety of emotion that is being uh, expressed and experiences. And what we see with the psalmist is a crying out to the Lord. And one of the most familiar themes that we have in the psalms that we will see very clearly is praise and worship a turning to the Lord, a crying out to Him, a giving thanks to Him, and then a, a praise to the Lord. And that's why we're going to be tremendously blessed as we go through these psalms because that's something that we can do and we are to do as Christians is to not only cry out to the Lord but then get our eyes and our focus on Him. Even as we go through the first few psalms, we'll see that pattern all throughout this book and then to worship Him because He is worthy of our worship because we know that our God is a great God. He comforts us. He hears us. He desires to work on our behalf. So that's why the Psalms are, are such an important book. And the writers articulate, you know, in these Psalms the things that they're going through that uh, in such a special way, of course, it's anointed, it's inspired by God to where we can read it and we can say, yes, I feel that way. Particularly David, David, the, the king of Israel, of course, also called the sweet psalmist of Israel, 
wrote at least 73 psalms that his name is pinned to and very probable wrote more than 73. Some of these psalms that it is believed by Bible scholars that Probably David wrote those psalms, but David writing at least half of the book of Psalms, and then we have others such as Asaph. You recall that Asaph was a worship leader at the time of David. When we went through First Chronicles, you remember that as David was preparing the Levites for when Solomon would come along and worship or build the temple, and, and David was getting the temple worship all prepared, and he got the Levites all in order and the, and the worship leaders, and there was going to be worship at the temple 24-7 going on all the time. And Asaph was a worship leader along with his brother Heman. And I think that's a great name, He-Man, you know, for a worship leader. But um, they were two of great worship leaders that were used of the Lord. So Asaph, who was also, the scripture uh, declares that he was a seer, he was a prophet. He writes in pens 12 that we know of, 10 are written by the sons of Korah, two by Solomon, and one by Moses. So even though you have one that we know Moses wrote, uh, which would be about 1500 B.C., most of the Psalms were written during the era, during the time of 2 Samuel and also 1 Kings, when the kingdom was united. Uh, Most were written between that time period, 1000 to 900 B.C. So we see the book of Psalms here that is given to us, and many of the Psalms, as I mentioned to you, the emphasis is going to be worship. When we go into Proverbs, the emphasis is going to be wisdom. Now, the book of Psalms also will give us great wisdom. We will see that most evident in the first chapter as we go through it, how it is that we can be blessed, you know, how it is that we are to trust in the Lord. So a lot of wisdom is given to us in the Psalms uh, and also the aspect of worship. So those two things are very important in our Christian lives, to be ones that are worshiping and that we are walking in the wisdom of God. Uh, The book of Psalms is divided up into five books that we will see, like uh, book one is Psalms chapter 1 through 41, and then book two is uh, chapters 42 through 72. So we'll see that. And as you go to the New Testament, we know that there are over 400 quotes in the New Testament that come from the book of Psalms. And we also saw that recently, well, last Sunday, when we are seeing Jesus, his crucifixion, as John's gospel was recording that, and we saw that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, some of that prophecy was in the book of Psalms, like Psalm 22, verse 18, that they cast lots and divided up my garments. Of course, that happened at the cross. Uh, We know that uh, other prophecy was fulfilled in, in Psalm 22. Psalm 34, verse 20, that none of my bones were broken. And so prophecy is given in the book of Psalms, and we know that it is quoted oftentimes by Jesus himself, fulfilling those prophecies, quoted in the Old Testament, uh, uh, New Testament, that is. And that's why it's very important that we are students of the Old Testament. I just want to throw that out to all of us because sometimes Christians have the mindset of, well, the New Testament is important, but the Old Testament is not. 
for us to really have a fuller understanding of the New Testament, you, you need to have a good understanding of the Old Testament. That's one of the things I tell my high school students as we go through Old Testament survey and New Testament survey, is that to understand the New Testament to a greater degree, you need to understand the Old Testament because there are so many references that are made in the New Testament that are made from the Old Testament. And Jesus himself, you know the favorite book of Jesus, the quote, is from the book of Deuteronomy. Some Christians think, well, Deuteronomy is not important. Well, it was to Jesus. From Isaiah, from the book of Psalms and other portions. So Psalms is quoted often in the New Testament. Now, there are different types of Psalms that we will see when we go through these 150 Psalms. One uh, type of Psalm is a Messianic Psalm. We will see that tonight as uh, the... that. Uh, is a psalm that speaks perfectly about the person and, and work of Messiah when he comes and he establishes his kingdom. So messianic psalms. Uh, we also have uh, psalms of lament. Uh, that is when uh, in those psalms there is a cry to God for help uh, due to some trouble that the psalmist finds himself in. We will see that again tonight as David will be crying out to the Lord. We have psalms that are testimonial. The writer declares and, and tells others how God has worked in their lives. For example, how God has saved them and delivered them from trouble. We have pilgrim psalms, that also known as songs of ascent. And these psalms have to do with pilgrimages to the holy city of Jerusalem. And then we have wisdom psalms. We have uh, psalms of repentance. We will see that particularly in Psalm 32 and in 51. David shows a heart of repentance and sorrow. There are historical psalms making reference to when they were in the wilderness and how God brought them through the wilderness and at other times as well. There are nature psalms speaking about the creation, the greatness of you know, of the creator who created creation and, and how marvelous that his works are. So those are just some of the different kinds of psalms that are, there are. So as we go into Psalm 1, as we begin, let's go right into it. We see that um, Psalm 1 is probably uh, one of my favorite psalms in all of the psalms. I mean, I don't have a favorite, but uh, I love this psalm because it is so beneficial to to hear what the psalmist writes. Uh, on this psalm, there's no uh, author that is attributed to this psalm, but we do read that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So right away, the book of Psalm begins with the word blessed. And as most of you know, that that word blessed means, oh, how happy. If you want to be happy, this is what you are to stay away from. This is one thing that you don't do, and that is you do not walk with the ungodly. You don't, you know, be one that is walking in ungodly counsel, that is in carnal, worldly counsel. Um, 
in this life, as we walk through this life, in our Christian journey, there are so many voices that are out there. There's so much counsel that is out there um, all around us. And it's very easy, folks, as you know, to begin to walk in that ungodly counsel. Matter of fact, Paul the Apostle in Colossians chapter 2, he would warn the Christians and he said, listen, don't be cheated by, you know, traditions of men, by worldly counsel, by philosophy of men, by empty deceit, and, and that which is not of Christ, because in Him is hidden all the treasures of, of knowledge and wisdom. So as Christians, as we've already established, there is a difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom will cheat you, and you will not be blessed by walking in worldly carnal wisdom. And listen, it is all around us, and it can sound good at times. It is appealing. It might appeal to the flesh. Uh, it may, to you, make sense. But if it is contrary to what God has to say, you are not going to be blessed. You're not going to live that happy, blessed life that God wants you to, that life abundantly, if you walk in worldly counsel. And I, this is an opinion of mine, but I think that too much of the world's counsel is creeping into the church, and I mean the church at large today adopting, you know, uh, worldly philosophy and views and uh, beginning to, to try to appeal to people in that way. We need to make sure that we are listening to and hearing constantly in our lives and walking in godly counsel, and that's what he wants us to do. But notice here that as we read this, there's a progression that is here. Not only don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, um, but you don't want to also, as we see, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Notice the progression, walking. You're walking along, you know, and um, walking along in life, and, and all of a sudden you're hearing things. You're beginning to receive things uh, as, as you hear it at work or talk radio or, you know, on TV, whatever it might be. But then you don't want to stand with the ungodly. You don't want to stand in the path of sinners. And standing with them means that you're just kind of hanging out with the ungodly, standing around, hanging out. And then you don't want to sit as well, as it says, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. That will get you into trouble. That will lead you to a path that you will not be blessed. And we see that progression in the scriptures. You go back to Genesis you see it with Lot, don't you? Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. Remember that they were butting heads, you know, the herdsmen of Lot and, and Abraham because, um, you know, their herds got, were large and in the way. And Abraham said, listen, Lot, we're brothers. You know, we don't need to be doing this. You look and go one way and I'll go the opposite way. There's plenty of room for us. So what did Lot do? He walked over towards Sodom. It looked good. It looked appealing over there. As he looked over there, it looked like a garden. And you see, that's why I mentioned that sometimes the ungodly counsel of the world, you know, it can sound good to people. It can appeal to the flesh. I, I think I'll go that way. I think I'll go in that direction. And that's what Lot did. And then pretty soon he's standing around Sodom. He pitched his tent there. He's there close by. Now, when we think of Sodom... In the book of Genesis, of course, it tells us that Sodom was a very wicked city, very sinful city. But there was something in Sodom that attracted Lot. And Lot in the New Testament is called righteous Lot. 
I look at his life and he didn't seem very righteous to me, but he's called righteous Lot. And there was something about Sodom that, that sucked Lot into that place, into that place of sin and wickedness and carnality and worldliness. It was probably economically, you know, prosperous, culturally stimulating, intellectually challenging or whatever it may be. And so not only did he walk to Sodom, and then he's standing around Sodom, but the next time you see Lot, he's sitting at the gate of Sodom, which means that he was involved. It means that he was in leadership. It means people were looking to him. Lot would go in that progression. We see it with Peter. We just saw it recently on Sunday morning in John's Gospel. Peter, as they bound up Jesus there in the garden, and they would take him to Jerusalem, back to Caiaphas, and what did Peter do? He followed the soldiers from a distance. He is walking. He's following them. And then all of a sudden, he's there standing in the courtyard of Caiaphas, and then what is he doing? He's sitting at the fire, isn't he? He's sitting at the fire of the enemies of Jesus, at the world's fire, and all of a sudden, what is happening? He's cursing, and he's swearing, and he's denying the Lord. So we need to be careful not to walk in ungodly counsel, not to be hanging out with, you know, those who are sinners, and uh, we are not to be sitting in the seats of scornful. But verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. So what are you and I to do? We are to delight in the Word of God. We are to be meditating on the Word of God day and night. Make the Word of God listen. This is so important, and I know that you know this. But I'm going to emphasize it again tonight. Make sure that you are taking the Word of God and making it and applying it in your life day and night constantly in every area of your life, in every you know, time of your life, whether it's day or night. And as you do, as you delight in it, then you're going to be successful, as it says here. You can read, you shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall also not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So meditate on the word of God day and night. <laughs> that word meditate literally uh, in, the, um, in the Hebrew means muttering. Kind of muttering is what it means. I used to wonder, what does that mean, muttering? Well, if you go to Israel today, and you at the Western Wall, for example, and you'll see the Orthodox Jews kind of pass by you, and they're kind of speaking. They're kind of talking to themselves. And I just thought, what's up with that? You know, or do they just do that or, or what? But they're muttering. That's what they're doing. They're muttering the Word of God. And, and they take that from here. Meditate on the Word of God day and night. Joshua, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, Joshua, you're going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land now. And, and if you want to be successful and prosperous, meditate on the word of God. I find that interesting. Day and night is what the Lord told Joshua. Joshua, you got a huge mission. You're going to be fighting the Canaanites. You're going to be outnumbered. You're finally taking the children of Israel after 40 years in the wilderness into the promised land. And if you want to be prosperous and successful, Joshua, then you guys need to really go into fighting training skills. Is that what the Lord said? No. You need to, to come up with, you know, 
you know, special weapons. You need to really tone your, your fighting skills. You, you need to really get together and do this. No, he said, if you want to be successful, meditate on the Word of God day and night. And you will be prosperous and successful in the best sense of those words, and that is according to God's economy, according to God's values and views. Meditate on the Word of God if you want to be blessed. And as you meditate on the Word of God, as you delight in the law of the Lord, you shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth this fruit in its seasons, a leaf that shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So again, the real key is to be planted in the Word of God. You'll be like you know, a tree that's planted by the rivers, like um, you know, a lot of us, or a lot of you perhaps, that you take a walk along the Poudre River Trail. And as you walk, those big cottonwoods that are down there along the river, and they're big and they're huge. And in any, you know, stream that if you go up in the mountains, that's what I love about streams is uh, you, you get by the rivers and by the streams, and you got big pine trees, and they're established because they have the water that's there and, and the nutrients that are there to make them big, and they're healthy looking, and, and they're not dried up. They're not withered away like a tree that perhaps is up on a side of a cliff where it's dry and everything. Jesus, of course, would say to that Samaritan woman that if you drink of the water of the world, Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the living water that I have to give to you, and of course Jesus would give that invitation in John's gospel that come to me, all of you, you know, who are, that is, if you thirst, come to me and drink. And out of your belly will flow torrents of living water. So we go to him to be refreshed, to the word of God to be refreshed and renewed. And he says that you shall bring forth in, in, um, in season. That you'll be like that tree planted by the rivers of water, taken in and being refreshed by the living waters, the water of the word, and then brings forth this fruit in a season. I kind of noticed that this afternoon. I was thinking about that in its season. Because as Christians, we go through different seasons, don't we? Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 20, that he would say to the Ephesian elders, you know what manner of man I was in all seasons. In other words, what he was saying to them, whether I was being persecuted by the Jews that he would mention there, or whether things were going good, whatever season I was in, you know what manner of man I was. I was a man that presented to you the gospel. I didn't hold back. I gave to you what was beneficial. Matter of fact, Paul was talking about his, his integrity in ministry in giving the word of God and declaring it and, and his godly integrity in his life. You know what manner of man I was in all seasons. And you and I can go through different seasons in our walk with the Lord. There are times in our lives where it feels kind of cold. We're going through difficulties. And, and um, you know, it, it's like wintertime. It's dark and it's cold and we can struggle. But as we are meditating on the Word of God, and that might mean that you're in a season where your life where you need to be comforted, where you're just going through the Psalms. And you're crying out to the Lord and you're reading the Psalms and saying, Lord, that is my heart. But in due time, know that you're going to bear forth fruit. As you continue, as Jesus said, abide in me and abide what? In my word. You're going to bring forth fruit in its season. 
And perhaps you are here tonight, and maybe you're heavy of heart. Maybe you're facing, uh, you know, troubles in your own life for whatever reason. But know that as you meditate on the Word of God, that as you are planted, you know, by uh, the, the river that is taking in the water of the Word, and as you are just drinking of the Lord, being refreshed by Him, you are going to bear forth fruit, and you're going to prosper. You're going to prosper in the Lord because He's going to be faithful to you. And so, verse 4, the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You guys know what chaff is around the grain, you know, um, is the chaff that um, they would, of course, have the threshing floor there. And as you read in the scriptures, and as they would thresh the wheat and the grain, they would throw it up in the air and the chaff would fall off and the grain falls down and then the wind would come and blow away the chaff. It isn't good for anything. And they would sweep it up and they would burn it or get rid of it. So chaff is dead. It, it's dry. It blows away. That's the description of the wicked. That's the description, listen, of ungodly counsel. Know that it's dead. That it's worthless. When it contradicts the word of God. I don't care how society may look at it and say, this is wonderful, this is great. And have you ever noticed that the world's wisdom is always changing all the time? It's changing constantly. The Word of God is the same. It's forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible declares. And then in verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So the future of the ungodly is not good. The way of the righteous, you know, um, is where we're going to be blessed. Believers, true believers are blessed, and we know that it is the non-believers that will perish, as we will see this oftentimes will be phrased in that way as we go through the um, book of Psalms. You know, the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly are completely different. So a lot of wisdom that is given to us just in Psalm 1, but Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Um, we read, why do the nations rage uh, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So a quiz tonight for you who I'm sure that most of you have probably read Psalm 2, that there isn't a, a title here, there isn't an author, it's not attributed but we know who wrote this psalm, don't we? We know that David wrote this psalm, right? You should just to say, yeah, because I know. I'm a student of the scripture, right? How do we know? Acts chapter 4, verse 25, I believe, that it is Peter that attributed, as he quotes from this psalm, as David saying. So we know it's a psalm of David, right? So he's dealing here as a messianic psalm with the rebellion of men. As, you know, he's dealing with the rebellion of the nations. This psalm speaks of when Jesus will come and rule and reign in the kingdom age. Now we know that the prophetic scenario is this. That at the end of the tribulation period, that the nations will gather. Zechariah chapter 14, that Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling to all the nations. They will surround Jerusalem, desiring to destroy Jerusalem. They'll be in the northern part of Israel in what is called the Valley of Megiddo. 
And in that valley, as the nations gather in that last world war, they will plot a vain thing. We're going to destroy the Jews. We're going to destroy God's people. We're going to destroy Jerusalem. And they're fighting against each other. And Jesus will come back at the end of the tribulation period to deliver his people, to usher in his kingdom, to judge the nations at that time, and he will restore the nation of Israel. So when Jesus comes back, and by the way, you and I get to come back with him, as Revelation chapter 19 declares to us, that we're going to be riding on white horses. So Jesus will come back at that time, and he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years, and he will rule over the nations. And according to Matthew chapter 25, when you see the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats that are separated, that's the judgment of the nations. You say, Pastor Jeff, how do you know that's the judgment of the nations? Because it tells us that in Matthew 25 when you begin to read it, the judgment of the nations. And so the nations will be judged. And so the nations plot a vain thing. They're, they're coming against God's people. Uh, they're having that war. When Jesus comes back, what amazes me is that they will stop fighting each other in that battle of Armageddon, the last world war. And, and Jesus said if he had not come back, then man would have destroyed himself. But what happens is they stop fighting each other and they fight against Jesus. They apparently turn their weapons or whatever on Jesus to no prevail because he's simply going to speak. As the sword comes from his mouth, Revelation chapter 19, the word of God is what? Like a sword. The sword of the Spirit is what? The word of God. The word of God, a living sword. I think he's just simply speaking that he's going to speak. It's a reference to Jesus just speaking and then those Armies are going to be destroyed. There's the judgment of the nations and the restoration of Israel. And he's going to rule and reign from that time. Um, so the nations plotting a vain thing. How foolish for the nations to do that. We know that the nations of the world have been in rebellion against God ever since Genesis. The Tower of Babel. We will make a name for ourselves. And so one of the things that we need to do is pray for our nation. We need to pray for our nation, and we need to make it a priority, especially the way that our nation is going spiritually, morally, that we're getting further away from the Lord, that we're pushing God out of our nation, a nation that has always been known as a Christian nation. All of a sudden, we're not known as a Christian nation anymore. But there are Christians like you and many others that we need to be praying for our nation. We need to be praying for leaders and, and continue to do that. So here they, they, they plot a vain thing, and he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and, and the Lord shall hold them in derison, and, and then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress uh, them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So the Lord laughs at the nation, and, and don't picture the Lord's up there going, ha, 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 like a mad scientist, you know, I'm going to destroy you guys. Um, when it says that he, la he laughs, he's not afraid of the nations. He, you know, he's not afraid of what man can do to him. He's not worried about it. Actually, he grieves over it. But he will make a, uh, them to where he will rule over them. 
and God will bring wrath to defiant man is what he will do. And in verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. So a decree that God gives to the nation. The father declares to Jesus the son, you are my son, and, and today I have begotten you. Verse 8, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So Jesus is going to come when he establishes his kingdom and he's going to rule over the nation from Jerusalem. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And that's when Isaiah says that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. I don't know about you, but I look at this messed up, mixed, mixed up world, and I can't wait till the Lord comes back. And I know you can't wait either. And here's the cool thing about it, is that you and I are going to rule and reign with him. Will you keep that in mind? When we get discouraged, when we get down, when we get persecuted, when we have people come against us, that Jesus Christ is going to come back. And my prayer for us is that we would never be ashamed of the Lord. That we would be never ashamed of proclaiming the Lord. That we would never compromise. And we know that Jesus is going to rule and reign, and we're going to rule and reign with him. So be faithful to him. Be faithful to him. And I don't know what that means, we're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to be given responsibilities. You know, um, I was reading um, not long ago, uh, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul's talking about those guys, you guys need to you know, settle your disputes. Don't you know that you're going to judge the angels? So I don't know exactly what that means, but apparently as we rule and reign with him, we'll be you know, telling the angels, hey, you, go over and do this. And you, you know, you go do this. We'll kind of maybe be bossing them around a little bit. I think that's kind of cool. Don't picture heaven as being boring. Don't picture heaven as, as, you know, the Hollywood version of sitting up on a cloud with a harp and, you know, bored and, oh, I wish I could go back. Don't think of the, in those ways at all. We're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to receive rewards. We're going to be given responsibilities. And you see, you and I are to be faithful now. Jesus talks about that. Be faithful in the little things, I'll give you greater things to do. If I can't trust you with worldly, you know, manna, how can I trust you with the heavenly manna? As we rule and reign and given rewards and responsibilities to rule over ten cities, five cities, two cities, be faithful to what God has for you in your life and where you're at right now. And whatever it means that we're going to rule and reign with him, that we can be sure that it's going to be so glorious and so wonderful. One of the things, is, as a lot of you know, that I love the Yellowstone ecosystem, so I put in my bid for Yellowstone. So you guys forget about that. Don't ask for that. I want to rule and reign over Yellowstone, you know. I just love that area up there. But you know what? Enjoy the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord. Be serving the Lord. Because there's rewards to be given and responsibilities. And it has a lot what we do now in this life. Be faithful in little things. He's going to give you greater things to do. 
So serve the Lord with fear is what the psalmist says. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So once again, we see blessed, oh, how happy are they who put their trust in him. Trust the son, submit to the son. Then comes those who reject him. You kings, you need to fear him. He's the one that's going to rule and reign. So this, this messianic psalm, then Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, we have a title here. And, of course, as, as you know, that in the psalms, there are, uh, some of them have titles. And here um, it has a title, a psalm of David. When he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, what's uh, wonderful is to be able to put the Psalms in with the scripture reference and the story that's given to us. In this case, the story is in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And what is wonderful about it is as we read that story of David fleeing from his son Absalom, that we can really know the heart of David, what was in his heart, what he expresses to the Lord, how he was troubled. And that's what's so wonderful about these psalms as we go through them. But I just want to point this out. I was going to point it out later because I thought we'd probably get through the first five or six psalms tonight. I don't think we're going to. Um, but we're going to see that David oftentimes in his trouble and in the most difficult times of his life, he writes a psalm. Do you realize that David, of course, one of the people that persecuted him and where these psalms came out of is when Saul was pursuing David, right? And then Absalom here in their pride and their arrogance, you know, um, in their rebellion. It's not recorded that Saul or Absalom ever wrote a psalm. But David did. A lot of them. And a lot of those songs or psalms that he wrote came out of difficulty. And one of the things that I have noticed, and I'm sure you have too, that as David expresses his broken heart in this situation, because remember, as we take this psalm here, and as we read it, he's grieving over the situation of his son trying to usurp the throne. Not only was that, you know, where David's life was endangered, you know how Absalom was bitter towards his dad. He was bitter towards his dad, and he began to plot. He began to, to determine how it is, can I take the throne away from my dad, David? How can I steal the hearts of the men of Israel? And what Absalom did is he was without spot or blemish, the Scripture says. Man, he was a handsome-looking guy, and he had a chariot, and he had 50 runners before him. He looked impressive, and he came every morning through Jerusalem with those runners and a chariot, and he would go to the gate of the palace, and, and there he would tell the people that are waiting to have their cases heard because, you know, they didn't have court times. You showed up at the gate, and they would hear your case, so people got there early, and it was Absalom that was saying, hey, if I was the king, I, I would do you justice. I would help you. I would be down here hearing your case right now, and over time, as he plotted and as he 
would work in that way and be deceptive. It says that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And all of a sudden, David finds out Absalom has Israel behind him and the leaders behind him. David, we've got to go. We've got to flee. And David would flee. And he has his hood, you know, it's over him as he goes over the Mount of Olives and he's grieving. But here's the thing. David is not only grieving because of this problem. His life is in danger. He's grieving because it's his son who wanted to kill him. Absalom wanted to kill his dad. And David expresses that in these Psalms here and how he's been troubled by those men that have raised up against him. Let's read this. That's the story that's going on. Lord, how they have increased who troubled me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. When David left Jerusalem, he, he's on the Mount of Olives, and there's this guy by the name of Shimei. He began to curse David. He's throwing rocks at David, you know, kind of like kicking him while he's down. And he's taking advantage of the situation. He doesn't like David, and he's cursing at David, and you're a bloodthirsty man and throwing rocks at him. Well, one of David's men, Abba Ashai, he said, David, can I just go over there and lop his head off? And David said, No. Perhaps the Lord has ordered this. It may be that he will look on my affliction and the Lord will repay me with good for the cursing this day. The enemies increased. When they went after David, it was the advice that was given to Absalom, let's gather all the men of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, all across the nation. Let's go with overwhelming odds against David and his mighty men. And they were saying, Is there, there's no help for David. You know, there's no help from God for him. And maybe you've experienced those coming against you because you're a Christian. And it hurts because it's co-workers or people that you know. But it really hurts because it's family. And you're ostracized and the relationships are severed or perhaps strained. And it seems like that they're out to just come against you and be nasty to you. And people will say, there's no help for you. God's not going to help you. And notice here that there's a pause after verse 2, Shalah. It means a pause. And it's used 71 times here in the book of Psalms, three times alone in this chapter. And here's David, they've increased who troubled me. Many who say, there's no help for, for him in God and he pauses. And why is that pause very important? Because then he gets his eyes on the Lord. But, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. Lord, you're the one that you are a shield for me. You're the one that protects me. I'm getting my, my, my focus on you. You're the lifter of my head. You know how you're going through you know, such trouble by the hands of somebody that it really hurts that you can barely lift your head up. You're just down. You can, some days it's such a struggle you can't even get out of bed. And that was David because he says, but you, O Lord, and, and as he says, you're my shield. You're the one who lifts up my head. You gives me the strength. I cry to you 
and you hear me. And I lay down and slept. I woke and the Lord sustained me. You're going to sustain me, Lord. You're going to strengthen me. And I slept. He's thinking how the Lord protected him and gave him rest. It reminds me, Jesus, remember in the boat? It's a storm. What was he doing in the boat? He fell asleep. And the guys wake him up and said, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus cried out, be still. Shalah. Stop. And get your focus off the situation of others and get it on the Lord. And we need to do that. And it's hard to do that at times. And know that God sees you and he hears you. And he wants to strengthen you and bless you. To be your protection and rescue you. He cares about you. And he cares about the anxiety and the troubles that you're going through and the hurt that you feel because somebody perhaps is coming against you. Maybe somebody that you care about and love. Maybe a family member like David was going through. So he says, I lay down as I read already and slept and I awoke and the Lord sustained me and I won't be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. David literally had 10,000s of people that were against him. Uh, you know, for me, it doesn't take 10,000s of people for me to be afraid. Sometimes it can take just one person, right? And it's interesting how that works, that, for example, Peter, he takes out a sword, and what does he do? He whacks off Malchus's ear. I mean, that took a lot of guts for Peter to do that. And where did he fail? He was afraid of a little girl. I know that in my own life, there have been times where, you know, um, man, you know, uh, I feel strong and, and courageous, and then somebody will come along and just throw me for a loop, and I don't fully understand it. And I become afraid. And I know at that time that, that Lord, I need to go to you and, Lord, that you will save me. As David says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. When he says, arise, O Lord, he's had confidence that, Lord, you are going to save me. And, and you hear me, and you're going to act now. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. So what he, he's just simply expressing here is, Lord, that you work. You deal with them. You deal with the ungodly. And salvation belongs to you. And again, blessing upon your people. Father, we thank you for this beginning and the study of the book of Psalms. And we got a long ways to go. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't tire of it, that we would continue to be blessed and encouraged by these Psalms. That Lord, tonight, even as we see that you're the one that sits on the throne, then blessed is the one who walks in your ways. Blessed is the one who walks in godly counsel. And Father, my prayer is that we would have a desire to delight in the Word of God and the law of God day and night, making it a part of our lives in every area of our lives, applying it and walking in it. And Lord, I thank you that we can come here tonight and gain wisdom and also encouragement to worship even in the difficulties. And Lord, I do pray for those who perhaps that are afraid because of a situation or because of someone. 
or maybe overwhelmed or feeling attacked or persecuted or just in difficult circumstances, that, Lord, that they would know you see them and you love them. And just as we finished here tonight, that, Lord, you're going to come and rule and reign. And we have a wonderful future. But, Lord, I know that oftentimes we need your comfort now. And I pray that as we do come, and, Lord, ask for it right now, wherever you're at, just ask, Lord, bring the comfort that I need right now to help me get my eyes on you, Lord. In your distress, when you feel backed into a corner, you feel like there's no way I know that the Lord will make a way of escape, that he sees you and will be the lifter of your head and strengthen you and protect you. And tuck that in your heart. And as we finish tonight, that you are our salvation. So I pray for anybody that is here tonight or listening on live stream that you've never embraced Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That Jesus, he's going to rule from this world, but he first came to die for you. He came to die for your sins because he loves you. And all of us, we have sinned. And Jesus, in his compassion and in his great work, went to a cross to die for you and for me, for all of us. And as we read on Sunday, as we were going through John chapter 19, that Jesus cried that famous and that most wonderful declaration that it is finished. In other words, he's done the work. He paid the price for your sins. He made atonement. He has redeemed you, purchased you back to himself. He was put into a grave. He rose again. He validated what he did. You need to come and just receive it. Cry out to him tonight for salvation because he is your only salvation. If that is you tonight, I want you to pray right where you're at forgiveness of sin and for right relationship with the Father that only comes through Jesus for salvation that comes as you recognize who Jesus is. You repent. Quit going the way that you're going. Turn to Jesus. Surrender to Him. Come in faith. It is faith alone in Jesus believing in what He did for you and dying on the cross and rising from the grave that He is Lord. pray, Jesus, I come to you a sinner. And I pray that you would forgive me. You died on the cross for me, and I thank you for that. And you cried out, it is finished. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you're alive and rose from the grave. And I open up my heart to you. For you to sit upon the throne of my life. I thank you for hearing my prayer, Jesus, and for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. 